You are now listening to the February 4th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Psalms, This Is My Song, Sermon, and Equipping the Saints. First, let's begin with Psalms, This Is My Song. Hello, this is Terry with Psalms, This Is My Song, a time in which we confess our hearts to the Lord. I believe it is very important that we set our sights during our spiritual lives while believing in Jesus and walking toward heaven. It will be easier to relate if we remember the story of Apostle Peter, who asked, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. When he saw Jesus walking on the sea in the fourth watch of the night, when Peter's sight was set on Jesus, he experienced the wonderful miracle of walking on the sea. But when his sight was directed to the furiously blowing wind, we can see that he became frightened and began to sink. Jesus spoke to Peter, You have little faith. Why did you doubt? We must contemplate deeply in our hearts what Jesus said to Peter. Many times we start to direct our sight away from Jesus to something else. Then our faith becomes weak and we begin to have doubts. That is why it is very important to continue on the path of the Spirit-filled life with our sights set only on the Lord. The psalm we are going to share together today is a confession of the writer who lived his life setting his sight only toward God. It's Psalm 62. Biblical scholars explain that David wrote this psalm while he was fleeing from his son Absalom. David's heart must have been heavy when he saw his officials and even his own son contemplating to choose sides and begin to oppose him. Who could possibly have fathomed David's heart? How hurtful must it have been when he saw his one faithful official betray him and his own son was attempting to kill him on the front line and become the king? David could not fight against his own son, but also could not die at the hands of his own son. In verse 3, David wrote that people were united and attacked him to kill him when he was like a leaning wall and a tottering fence. David was a leaning wall. He was a tottering fence. And still, people were united to topple that already leaning wall and pull out that tottering fence. It was like rubbing salt in his wounds. We have difficult situations like this in our lives. Most of us have experienced difficult situations where problems become worse and worse with difficulties that pile up on top of them, causing us to lose all hope of living. What did David confess during his dire situation? David already knew what he must do to resolve this dire situation. He spoke to himself in Psalms chapter 62 verse 5, My soul, wait in silence for God only, for my hope is from him. David did not direct his sight to the situation that was surrounding him. He did not direct his sight to the enemies who were threatening him. David knew. He knew that he would become frightened and his faith would weaken if he directed his sight on his own situation. If Apostle Peter realized this as well, he would have continued to set his sight on Jesus and would have continued to walk on water and have gone to Jesus. I hope we can take the time to check what our sights are set upon in our own lives. 
I hope that we can all check ourselves and see if we are becoming doubtful and weak because our sights are directed at the situations that make us frightened and directed at our enemies. Just as we can learn from David and from Apostle Peter, I pray that we will all be able to walk on the path of the spiritual life with our sights set on God and Jesus. Let's conclude today's psalm. This is my song by reading Psalm chapter 62. My soul waits in silence for God only. From Him is my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will you assail a man that you may murder him, all of you, like a leaning wall, like a tottering fence? They have counseled only to thrust him down from his high position. They delight in falsehood. They bless with their mouth, but inwardly they curse. Selah. My soul, wait in silence for God only, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold I shall not be shaken. On God my salvation and my glory rest. The rock of my strength, my refuge is in God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. Men of low degree are only vanity, and men of rank are a lie. In the balances they go up, they are together lighter than breath. Do not trust in oppression, and do not vainly hope in robbery. If riches increase, do not set your heart upon them. Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God. And loving kindness is yours, O Lord, for you recompense a man according to his work.
precious Savior, still our refuge. Oh, take it to the Lord in prayer. Do thy friends despise, forsake thee? Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor David Platt of Radical. Today's topic is, You Need Biblical Discipleship. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor David. If you have a Bible, and I hope you or somebody around you does that you can look on with, let me invite you to open with me to Matthew chapter 4. The first book in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 4. Feel free to use table of contents. So let's hear the word of God. Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 22, describe Jesus' first interaction with an invitation to his very first disciples. So how did that play out? Verse 18 tells us, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So Jesus' initial invitation to the very first disciples contained two simple words, follow me. But what did these words mean? Well, let's take them in reverse order. First, who's the me who's being followed here? Surely, realizing who Jesus is is essential to understanding what it means to follow him. And I count at least 20 different pictures of Jesus in just the first four chapters of Matthew leading up to this verse. They give us a stunning picture of who the me is. I want to show you this quickly. I would encourage you to write them down. Who is Jesus? Starting back in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, you feel free to turn back in your Bible there, just a couple of chapters, where Matthew writes, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. There's four pictures of Jesus right there in verse 1. 
Number one, Jesus is the Savior. That's what his name, Jesus, means, the one who will save us from our sins. Number two, Jesus is the Messiah. He is Jesus Christ. Christ is not his last name. It means the promised one, the one promised throughout the Old Testament to come. Number three, Jesus is the son of David. He's the promised king from the line of David. And number four, Jesus is the son of Abraham. Matthew takes us all the way back to Genesis in the very beginning of God's people there. So that's a loaded first verse. And it's followed by a list of names that show how everyone and everything in the Old Testament pointed to Jesus the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, which leads to picture number five. Jesus is the center of all history. Everything in all of history pointed forward to Jesus, and everything in all of history since then has pointed back to Jesus. Jesus is at the center of it all. You are not at the center of history. I am not at the center of history. Our generation is not at the center of history. The United States of America is not at the center of history. Throughout history, billions of people have come and billions of people have gone. Empires have come and empires have gone. Countries, nations, kings, queens, presidents, dictators, rulers have come and gone. At the center of it all stands one man, Jesus Christ. That's the first half of Matthew chapter 1. Then you get into the second half, his virgin birth, where we see the sixth picture of Jesus. He is fully human, and number seven, he is fully divine, born of the Spirit through a woman, unlike anyone else ever born, the incarnation, the most extraordinary miracle in all of the Bible. Jesus is God in the flesh. The Savior, Messiah, Son of David, Son of Abraham, center of history, fully human, fully God. That's just Matthew 1. Matthew chapter 2. Picture number eight, Jesus is the sovereign over the wise. As magi from the east come looking for a king and they bow at his crib. Number nine, Jesus is the shepherd of the weak. Matthew quotes from Micah chapter five to show how Jesus will rule God's people as a good shepherd. Don't you love this? The sovereign over the wise is the shepherd of the weak. Then the Old Testament imagery gets even richer. Number 10, Jesus inaugurates a new exodus. Imagery that's clear as God brings his son into Egypt and then back out of Egypt as a picture of the rescue and redemption from sin that he would bring. Number 11, Jesus ends the mournful exile. You study Matthew chapter 2 and you see how God in the coming of Jesus promises hope to the weeping women of Bethlehem who've lost their baby boys. Jesus has come to end the mournful exile of God's people. And in the middle of it all, number 12, Jesus loves his fiercest enemies. By the time you finish Matthew chapter 2, you realize Jesus has come to save people who seek to kill him. Jesus loves sinners like you and me. All of that in chapter 2. Then in Matthew chapter 3, four more pictures of Jesus here. He's the Redeemer King. John the Baptist declares the King is coming. He's going to redeem. He's going to make new all who repent and believe in him. And number 14, Jesus is the righteous judge. John the Baptist tells us a winnowing fork is in his hand and he will separate the grain from the chaff and all who do not repent of sin and believe in him will be burned with unquenchable fire. Then after that, John baptizes Jesus And in a rare glimpse into heaven, we see two more pictures. Number 15, Jesus is filled with God the Spirit, the Spirit of God resting upon him. And number 16, Jesus is loved by God the Father as a voice booms from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. 
All of that sets the stage for Jesus' temptations in Matthew chapter 4, where we would discover Jesus, number 17, Jesus is the new Adam, meaning that where the first Adam fell to the temptation of the devil, Jesus stood. Jesus did what no one else in history has ever done or will ever do. He resisted temptation fully, did not give in one time to sin. He's the new Adam and Number 18, Jesus is the true Israel, meaning Jesus is the faithful and obedient son who passed the test of temptation in the wilderness to conquer sin and Satan, which all leads up to the verses right before what we just read, where Matthew quotes from Isaiah, and we see number 19, Jesus is the light of the world. What Isaiah prophesied hundreds of years before has come true. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And then number 20, Jesus is the hope for all nations. It's Galilee of the Gentiles to whom Jesus first reveals himself. Do you see who this portrait of Jesus is? In such a way that when we get to verse 19 in Matthew chapter 4, and we see Jesus saying to four fishermen, follow me, we need to feel the weight and the wonder of the one who is speaking. This is Jesus, the Savior Messiah, the one promised to come in the kingly line of David, the father of God's people, Israel, fully human and fully divine, the one to whom wise men from the nations bow, whose birth ushers in the culmination of generations of prophecy and anticipation. He's the center of history, God in the flesh, redeemer, king, and righteous judge of the world, perfectly filled with God the Spirit, completely loved by God the Father, the only man who has conquered sin, the of the world and the hope for all nations. Do we realize who Jesus is? Because when we do, we will realize that Jesus is clearly and absolutely worthy of more than casual adherence and cultural association. We cannot reduce Jesus to a poor, puny Savior who's just begging for people in the 21st century to accept him into their hearts. And associate with him on the side of their lives. Accept him as if Jesus needs to be accepted by us. Jesus does not need your acceptance. He doesn't need my acceptance. Jesus is infinitely worthy of all glory and all the universe. He doesn't need us at all. We need him. God, help us to stop patronizing Jesus. He is worthy of far more than casual adherence and cultural association. Jesus is worthy of total abandonment and supreme adoration in our lives. We're not playing a religious game here. We're talking about the Savior King of the universe, the righteous judge of all the nations, God in the flesh, saying, follow me. The thought alone is baffling, mind-boggling. Jesus, this Jesus comes to you and says, follow me. There's no potential casual response here. It's either turn and run or bow and worship. You look at Luke's parallel account of Jesus calling these disciples, and you'll see as soon as Peter realized who Jesus was, he fell on his face, then rose and followed him. Everything would be different in these men's lives because of this encounter with Jesus, everything. You go back to Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, right before this, Jesus says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. That word repent means to turn from the direction you were walking in and go in a completely different direction. 
is to renounce one way of life for an entirely new way of life. Jesus says later in Luke 14, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. You think about it, this kind of renouncing, it's all over Matthew chapter 4. Think about what it meant for these fishermen. When it says immediately they left their nets, immediately they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. Think about what they were leaving behind. They were leaving behind their comfort. They were leaving behind everything that was familiar to them, all that was natural for them, leaving comfort for uncertainty. Notice, Jesus didn't tell them where they were going. He just said who they'd be with. Did you catch that? Followers of Jesus don't always know where they're going, but they always know who they're with. And that is enough. They were leaving behind their comforts. They were leaving behind their careers. This was an abandonment of profession, at least temporarily for these guys. Now we're going to come back to how all of this applies to us, but just see Feel how it applied to them. Put yourself in their shoes. They're leaving behind their comfort, careers, their possessions. These guys obviously were not the economically elite in their society, but the fact that they had a boat and successful trade as fishermen shows these men had much to lose in following Jesus. And we find out later, they likely still had a boat and various other things. The reality is, though, at this moment, they followed Jesus with nothing in their hands. Their possessions, their position, this is significant, It's one of the things that set Jesus' disciples apart from other disciples who would follow rabbis in that day. Disciples would often attach themselves to a rabbi in order to promote themselves. It was like a step up the ladder toward greater religious status and position. But that was not the case with these disciples. This was a step down the ladder because the rabbi they followed would continually be rejected by the religious elite. They were leaving behind their families. James and John leave their fathers. They're not the, their father. They're, they're not the only ones who we see doing this. Luke chapter 9, Jesus tells another potential disciple, don't even go back and say goodbye to your family. They were leaving behind their friends, their safety. This is a rabbi, a teacher, who would soon say to these same men, I send you out like sheep in the middle of wolves. All men will hate you because of me. They will persecute you. They were leaving behind their safety, their sin. That's the core of what it means to repent, to turn from your sin. And all of this ultimately pointing to the fact that they were leaving behind themselves. This is the message that would become central for any prospective follower of Jesus. Luke 9, 23. If anyone is going to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. There's a definition of following Jesus, denying yourself and taking up a cross in a world where everything revolves around yourself. Protect yourself, promote yourself, preserve yourself, entertain yourself, comfort yourself, take care of yourself. Even a church culture that revolves around making Christianity as safe and comfortable for you as possible. The author of Christianity actually says, crucify yourself. So let me give you a sentence then that summarizes biblical discipleship. What it means biblically, not culturally, to be a disciple of Jesus. Biblically, to be a disciple of Jesus is to trust and obey his leadership. That's what we've seen to this point. Everything we have, which may start to make us nervous until we realize who he is. 
And we realize that, of course, to be a disciple of Jesus is to trust and obey his leadership. This makes no sense for us to say, well, we'll trust you to save us once we die, but we will not trust you to lead our lives until we die. That's absurdity labeled cultural Christianity. Biblically, to be a disciple is to trust and obey his leadership no matter what that means. And, so keep going, to receive and enjoy his love. So do you feel the wonder in these words? Follow me. God in the flesh approaching four fishermen, looking them in the eyes and personally inviting them into relationship with him. This is amazing. I mentioned earlier it was common in first century Judaism for potential disciples to seek out a rabbi to study under. The beauty of what we're seeing here is that it's not these men coming to Jesus. It's Jesus coming to them. This is Jesus doing here at the beginning of the New Testament what God has done throughout the Old Testament, God coming to Noah, God choosing Abraham, God choosing Moses, God choosing David, God choosing prophets, God choosing Israel to be his people, Deuteronomy chapter 7. And just as God chose his people by his grace in the Old Testament, Jesus is choosing these disciples by his grace in the New Testament. He tells them, John 15, you did not choose me, I chose you. Do you realize this? You and I have spent our lives running from God in all kinds of ways. And the good news of the Bible, the greatest news in all the world, is that God has come running after us. Like God, the creator of the universe, pursuing you. And me, who are we? God loves you and me so much. He's sent Jesus to die on a cross for our sin, to rise from the grave in victory over sin, so that any one of us, no matter who we are or what we've done, by trusting in Jesus, we can be forgiven of all of our sin and restored to relationship with him for all of eternity. Do you see this? We have not been made for, called to, chosen for, casual, comfortable, monotonous, cultural religion. Go to church, read the Bible, pray every once in a while, live a decent life, coast till you get to heaven. No. Where did we ever get that in the Bible? You have been made for, called by God to relationship with God. Through Jesus, to humble your heart and receive his love in a way that transforms your entire life so you live and enjoy and experience his love in a relationship with him. This is Psalm 63. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I've seen you in the sanctuary. I've beheld your power and your glory. Your love is better than life, so my lips glorify you. I meditate on you in the watches of the night. I think about you all the time. This is what we're made for. Does this describe your relationship with God? Not like, oh, I guess I should read the Bible or pray or yeah. What? We were created for so much more. We were created for love relationship with God. 
with Jesus. If that doesn't describe your relationship with God, you are missing out on what it actually means to be a disciple of Jesus. It's to trust and obey his leadership as you receive and enjoy his love. And it's to give your life, making disciples of all nations. Follow me. And Jesus says, what will happen? I will make you fishers of men. That was in the first sentence. It wasn't like, once you get mature years from now, or some of you will get to this level. No, to be a follower is to be a fisher. From the very beginning, the initial invitation to follow Jesus, he was saying, from now on, Instead of searching for fish all over the lake, you're going to spread the gospel all over the world. This is what followers of Jesus do, which is why. So think just bookends. This is the initial invitation, Matthew 4. Follow me, I will make you fishers of men. To be a follower of Jesus is to be a fisher of men. End of Matthew. Last thing he says to them, go and do what? Disciples, go and make disciples of all the nations. To be a disciple is to be a disciple maker among the nations. Why do we say that every Sunday to each other? Because this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It means we go out from here and we live this week to make disciples of the nations. Not just a few of us, but all of us. Jesus has not called anyone to come and be baptized and sit in one location. He's a cultural Christian. Jesus has called every one of his followers to go and make disciples of all the nations. That's what a biblical Christian does. I mentioned there are three billion people in the world unreached by the gospel. We've talked about this map many times. The red area on this map representing three billion people who are on a road that leads to an eternal hell and nobody's even told them the good news of the one who makes heaven possible. How can that be? Like with all the technology and all the resources we have, how can it be there's three billion people in the world unreached by the gospel? And traditionally, the answer is, well, some missionaries need to change that. The problem is not a few missionaries need to change that. The problem is we need to start following Jesus, like all of us. The only way that is possible is if we're not following Jesus because he's made it clear, this is what you're about on this earth. It's what you raise kids to do, make disciples of the nations, not be amazing at sports and get jobs and get degrees where they can coast through until they get to heaven. Like, I'm not saying those are bad things, but that's not what Jesus has commanded us to do. He's called us to raise disciple makers among the nations. Is that what we're running around the city helping them do? Is that what our marriages are about? We say in Psalm 34, 3, glorify the Lord with me. Let's exalt his name together. How can we together as husband and wife live for the spread of God's glory among the nations? 
Is that the way, the way we see our marriages, our parenting, our family, our resources? We've been given some of, I mean, we live in one of the wealthiest places ever to exist on planet Earth. Why? We have been given wealth for the spread of Jesus' worship in the world. This changes everything when you start to live like this. Sure, God's not going to lead us all to live among the red. But surely following him means praying fervently for the spread of the gospel among the red. Giving sacrificially for the spread of the gospel among the red. And then going this week, wherever we live, and then wherever you may lead. If it's packed my bags, move to fill in the blank, I'll go. This is what it means to be a Christian. I live to make disciples of the nations. In other words, I live to lead others to do what? To trust and obey his leadership to receive and enjoy his love, and to give their lives making disciples of the nations. This is what biblical disciples do. Is it what you're doing? So now do you see it? You need biblical discipleship. This is critical for your life. You need to be in a church that does not woo you with casual, comfortable Christianity and then pacify you every week or whenever you may come with casual, comfortable, cultural Christianity. You need to be in a church that calls you to costly biblical Christianity. Knowing that. So here's how I would put it as we close knowing that the cost of discipleship is great. I hope we've seen that sufficiently. It costs you everything to be a follower of Jesus. Your life is not your own anymore. Everything. But you get Jesus. Life forever in and with Jesus, the one who's better than anything and everything and everyone in this world put together. He's infinitely better. At which point you realize, okay, the cost of discipleship may be great, but the cost of non-discipleship is far, far, far greater. It's far more costly to settle for cultural Christianity. You miss out on the life and the love that God has made you to experience today. No matter what may come your way, because when hard days come in our lives, and they will, sorrow and suffering, when hard days come, Cultural Christianity will not hold you up. Christ alone will hold you up in the valley. And then, not just today, whatever days may come, it will be eternally costly for many to hear Jesus say one day, I never knew you. Away from me. And then, to take it a step further, cultural Christianity is not just costly for you. Cultural Christianity will wreck a marriage. And it will give kids, the next generation, a warped view of Jesus. 
in addition to the rest of the world. Cultural Christianity is more than content to play the church game while millions of people around Metro DC and literally billions of people around the world continue on to an eternal hell while we coast through a nice, comfortable Christian spin on the American dream. It's not what we were made for. It's not what you were made for. You were made for so much more. You were made for biblical discipleship to Jesus. You were made to see who he is and with gladness to trust and obey his leadership, receive and enjoy his love, and give your life leading others to know him here and among the nations. This is the life you were made for. So will you bow your heads with me all across this room and other locations? As you bow your heads and close your eyes, I, I don't presume to know how this word has landed on your heart. But I'm going to assume that there are some, maybe many, whose eyes are being opened right now to either the fact that you have lived a culturally Christian life and have not biblically put your trust in Jesus. And I want to be super clear as you contemplate your own heart. This is not about doing certain things in order to earn Christian Christianity, eternal life with Jesus. No. By grace, you save through faith, and that's just it. It's trusting in Him. But some of you, I know so many people who have grown up in church, spent years in church, and came to a point, maybe like today, where they realized, oh, I've been missing the whole point. So maybe today you need to put your trust in Jesus for the first time biblically. Or others, maybe, Maybe you have trusted in Jesus, but you see traces of cultural Christianity. You see temptations to settle for less than what you were made for. And so regardless, whether for the first time or in a fresh way, God, we pray. We want to be biblical disciples of Jesus. Jesus, we see you for who you are. We praise you for who you are. You are infinitely worthy of all glory and all the universe. And we need you. We need you to save us. We need you to lead us. So we say, for the first time in a fresh way, we trust you with our life. We want to turn from all sin in ourselves. We want to die to ourselves daily. We want to follow you wherever, however you lead us, knowing Believing that your ways are far better than our ways. And that you satisfy better than anything, everything, everyone in this world put together. So we pray, help us. Help us to trust and obey your leadership as we receive and enjoy your love. And use our lives to make disciples 
of the nations here in Metro DC and far from here, however you lead us. God, help us not to settle for cultural Christianity and miss the true life of Christ in the process. In his name we pray. Amen.
Heart and Soul Gospel Broadcast through apps or podcasts on your smartphone. If you're an iPhone user, go to the App Store and download Heart and Soul. If you possess an Android phone, you can download it in the Play Store in the same way. Podcast users can download by searching Heart and Soul Broadcast in the search box. It also provides you with distinct broadcasts for children's program. By searching Heart and Soul Kids in the podcast, you can directly log on to the broadcast for children's program. For more information, please call and tag the office at 602-866-8999. The following program is called Equipping the Saints. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundsted, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. Well, when we hear of evil men and evil women who do such things as murder or abuse children or just someone who deliberately lies or is deceitful or whatever it might be, you know, we recognize what these people are doing, and we acknowledge it's evil. And yet when we come across someone we might know or have known who ends up doing deliberate evil, for many of us it's hard to fathom that someone could intentionally do something like that. Now within the church we have the same dynamic, that we recognize there are false teachers, we recognize there will be imposters. We've seen in the Old Testament there were many false prophets. Jesus warned of false prophets in the Gospels. In the New Testament, we have many warnings concerning false teachers and false prophets. Jude says certain people have crept in unnoticed. They turn the grace of God into licentiousness. Second Peter, we know that false teachers will arise among you. And we know that Paul would say in Acts 20, Men would arise speaking perverse things to draw disciples after themselves. This is within the church. That evil men and imposters would proceed from bad to worse. And it's easy for us to acknowledge, biblically speaking, that those things will happen, but it is hard for us to acknowledge that they might happen here. They might happen in your midst. So how can we avoid the danger that false teachers pose? Today we're going to see the first part of a detailed warning from the living God concerning the threats of false teachers. Turn your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at verses 10 to 16. Now, a little bit of the context we've seen so far that Peter is writing to believers, those who have a like faith as the apostles do. You see, if you're a true believer, you have a like faith as the apostles. You trusted in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and you were saved. And this book of Second Peter is about growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ and then being protected from threats to that growing in Jesus. 
Indeed, in chapter 1, verses 2, 3, and 8, and the last verse of chapter 3, verse 18, the book is about growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. Do you remember we saw already that Peter has made it clear that we've been given everything pertaining to life and godliness? We've been given everything we need through his precious and magnificent promises through the word of God. And it is through the word of God, by the spirit of God, we grow in our relationship with the living God. We have everything we need. And then we saw that God calls upon within that by faith to act upon his word in the context of faith. And as we grow, there should be some things happening. All these things should be happening. Moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, love. And if so, we are not useless or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then Peter made it clear he is ready to remind us of these things. The Lord had made it clear he was taking Peter home. And so he was going to stir us up so that we could call these things to mind. We need to call the sure scriptures concerning what we have in Christ to mind. And then we saw in the end of chapter 1 that the word of God is more sure than any even biblically true experience. It is more sure. We have the scriptures that we do beautifully to pay attention to. And he made it clear that we should know something first and foremost, that no prophecy of scripture becomes of one's own personal interpretation because no prophecy ever came by an act of human will. But men moved by the Spirit spoke from God. God's word is simply that, God's word. And we do beautifully to heed it. And then that moves us into chapters 2 and 3 where we have a contrast, the threats to growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The threats to walking rightly before him, the threats to what we have that gives us everything pertaining to life and godliness, threats to the word of God. And that brings us to what we're going to see today, how we can avoid the danger that false teachers pose. Again, we're going to be looking at chapter 2, verses 10 through 16, but this is really the whole chapter is one piece, the entire chapter. And so we need to remember that. So I'm going to start back in verse 1 and read up through our portion. And even when we stop in verse 16 today, remember, it continues on to verse 22. I had planned to do the 22. It's just too much. It's just too much. You see your outline. There's no room for anything on there, is there? Right? So let's begin. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Verse 2. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of the truth will be maligned, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not ill. Their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, or we know Tartarus is the Greek word there, and committed them pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the whole world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly thereafter. And if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day with their lawless deeds. Then 
The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. And here's our passage. And especially those who indulge in the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority, daring self-will, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. Whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed. Suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong, they count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin. Enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he received a rebuke for his own transgression, for a dumb donkey speaking with the voice of a man restrained the madness of the prophet. There's a lot there, but I think it all points to some very basic realities as we're going to look at it. I think today we're going to see to avoid false teachers, we need to believe, first of all, what God says. We need to believe about their nature, which we can't see, but God reveals. That nature which will be manifest in their actions. And next week, Lord willing, we'll take a look at their actions, which we can spot and understand. So this week, notice, first of all, our passage begins, verse 10, with a word and. And especially those who indulge in the flesh and its corrupt desires and despise authority. Obviously, as I've just read through, it doesn't stand on its own. Do you remember what we saw in the end of chapter 1 and then going on to verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2? We saw that we had been given everything pertaining to life and godliness, which we do well to pay heed to it. And that we need to, first of all, remember concerning God's word. But, but, in a contrast, chapter 2, verse 1, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false Teachers among you. They're going to be false teachers among you. Israel had false prophets in the past, and so too will the church have false teachers among you. They're going to, middle of verse 1, secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. They're going to introduce doctrines that ruin your walk with Jesus. This isn't the context of the church. It ruins your walk with Jesus. And we're going to see at every turn that God makes it clear to us that swift destruction is coming, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. And yet there's going to be damage, verse 2, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be maligned. Sensuality is translated licentiousness in other places. It's a license to sin. And we always think of immoral sins, but it's a license to sin in any way. And because of them the way of truth will be maligned. It'll be blasphemed the true way. And then we begin, as you'll remember, to see their motives, which we'll look at today in more depth. And in their greed, verse 3, they will exploit, or you with false words, we saw that exploit meant to do business. That's their business, exploiting with plastic words, molded words. That's what they do. And this is a statement we need to grasp. Otherwise, as we see in the end of the book, in chapter 3, verse 17, that we might be carried away by the error of unprincipled men. 
and fall from our own steadfastness. You can be steadfast in Jesus Christ and you can fall from that. Not to eternal damnation, but temporal fall in your walk with Jesus. The reality is there are dangers. They come in the context of those, as we will see, who submit, diminish, attack, lessen, dismiss, twist the word of God. But God doesn't miss a beat. Notice the second half of verse 3. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. They're going to be destroyed. God doesn't miss it. And then the last time we were in First Peter, we saw some examples in verses 4 through 10. Three examples of how God has laid forth already and begun to judge certain groups to show us that he's not going to miss the judgment of these bad guys. In verses 4 through 10, we saw, first of all, that he judged the fallen angels who sinned during the time of Noah, right? He also judged the world of the ungodly in a worldwide flood. And he judged Sodom and Gomorrah, reducing it to ashes as an example. And yet within that, he delivered righteous Noah and also respectively righteous Lot. And it's from this point in verse 9 we come to our passage. Look at verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. In a general sense, those who are not going to repent and trust in Jesus Christ, God will keep under punishment until the day of judgment. And there is a day of judgment. And then notice he says in verse 10, our passage, and especially, there's a group within the world of non-believers and the unrighteous, and especially those who indulge in the flesh and its corrupt desires and despise authority. The context here, as we're going to see, is this is speaking of the false teachers that he began to speak of in the beginning of chapter 2, and he will continue to speak of later on through chapter 2. He's saying God brought judgment upon those three groups as examples, that these people aren't going to get away with it, and especially those within the group of non-believers who rejected Christ, who do this, indulge in the flesh and its corrupt desires, despise authority. We're going to see that the characteristics of false teachers internally are that they revel in their sin and they revile authority. They revel in their sin and internally they revile authority. And sometimes that comes out externally, by the way. They don't want Christ as Lord over them. They don't want anyone as Lord over them. And they actually speak against lordships, as we're going to see. Now, the term indulge means to go to. They go to the flesh and its corrupting lust. The go-to reality for false teachers is the flesh, is indulging in their corrupted lusts. The term corrupted could be translated defiled. You could translate this defiled desires. They are their desires that have been defiled. They're sinfully wrong. And that's the go-to reality for false teachers. They go to defiled desires, especially those who go to defiled desires. That would include, as we'll see later on, deception as they carouse with believers. They have eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin. They entice and lure unstable souls, and then they are greedy, as we'll see in verse 14. That includes all of those defiled desires. They love the wages of unrighteousness. We're going to see that's what they indulge in. They indulge in their defiled wants. That's what they do. That's the go-to reality for them. And secondly, there's another thing that we see here. They also despise, in verse 10, authority. The term authority here literally speaks of lordships. You could translate it that way. 
lordships. They despise authority. The term despise speaks of thinking lightly or thinking lightly in a negative way, just disregarding, not caring about, not thinking about, not submitting to in that context. When you don't care about authority, you're not submitting to authority. Think about the criminal who doesn't care about the cops. He doesn't think at all about them. He just does his own thing. He despises authority, the authority of the law that is over him. So false teachers are being kept under judgment, not only because they indulge in their defiled desires, which specifically will see harm the church, but secondly, they're being kept under judgment because they despise lordship or authority. We're going to see later on that they have known the way of the Lord and Savior, Peter writes, Jesus Christ. They've known of the Lord. They've known of the Savior. They haven't come to him for salvation, but they know of it. They know of lordship salvation. They know about that. They've come to a knowledge of the Lord and Savior, but have turned away. They despise authority, and it's going to be manifest in how they despise angelic beings. So first of all, these false teachers are under God's judgment because, first of all, they revel in their defiled desires within the church, as we're going to see. And secondly, they revile or despise authority, authority in the spiritual sphere, as we're going to see, which I believe includes the Lord in a general sense. And we'll have an example in a minute. This is what's going on inside these bad guys. This is a summary that describes them that should warn us what's really happening when we see the evidence in the deeds later on, which we'll look at, Lord willing, next week. So middle of verse 10, notice what he says. Daring, self-willed, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. Whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. So here, these are daring, self-willed, false teachers who arrogantly and ignorantly revile and despise authority. This is an indication of what they do. Notice there are two words here. Daring, it's a noun. Self-willed is an adjective. Later on, we're going to see a stains and blemishes. You're going to see this. And later on, we're going to see accursed children. These are little indicators of some separation within the passage. Daring, self-willed. That's just all it says. It doesn't say they are daring, self-willed. It just says daring, self-willed. What does the term daring mean? Daring means bold. And it carries the context in the here of arrogance and presumption. They are bold in the things that they will say concerning angelic majesties. They are bold in those things. And they are, as we will see, arrogant, as we will see in respect to spiritual authority. Arrogant towards spiritual authority. Again, this word daring is modified by the adjective self-willed. The adjective self-willed comes from the Greek word aphedis. That's probably wrong. It comes from the, the Greek word auto, which means self, and hedomai which means take pleasure or delight. We get our word hedonism from it, right? We know what that means. They are those who take strictly pleasure in themselves. They take pleasure in their own selves. They are self-willed. It's part of not submitting to lordship, by the way. It's being self-willed. But they're going to have an external veneer that appears that they submit to Jesus. But they are daring and self-willed, daring, self-willed. It is a characteristic, as we see, of non-believers, and it is not to be a characteristic of those who claim to shepherd for him. Titus chapter 1, verse 7. 
You see, someone who exhibits no or little respect for God's authority or the authority of another person is someone who is self-willed. As we mentioned earlier, the criminal is self-willed. They just do what they want. They don't respect the law or authority. Self-willed. It's a characteristic here of false teachers, although they would portray themselves to be under the lordship of Christ. They will portray themselves to be so. But yet it is not the case as evidenced by their deeds. And now notice we have a visible example of their reviling in this circumstance here. And this probably was pretty significant to the church at this time. There were those around that Peter was probably pointing out that were doing these things that they could spot and see. And we've seen some of this in the churches these days. Daring, self-willed, middle of ten, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. Whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. The term revile comes from the word blasphemo. It means to speak against. And here it speaks about them speaking against angelic majesties, or the term is glories, angelic glories. An interesting term for who they're talking about, by the way. These false teachers are quick, as we'll see in context of Jude. And here, they are quick to call out demons and speak to them in the spiritual sphere. They're quick to revile them. And yet the scripture says they do not tremble. They don't fear at all what they're doing. And they're also, as we'll see in a minute, ignorant about what they're doing. Verse 11, whereas, an explanation, angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. Now the question is, who is the them there? Is it the false teachers or is it fallen angels. Well, in context of Jude, I believe it's fallen angels, as we're going to see. And so with that in mind, turn to Jude, just up a little bit to Jude. I think this is helpful in understanding this passage. These bad guys have no respect for authority that they're just reviling, speaking against things that are much more powerful than they are. Things to which even elect angels wouldn't even dare revile, but are saving that for God to say it to them, for God to say it. Jude 8, yet in the same manner, these men also by dreaming, it's really what it is, it's phony, right? It's all in their minds, defile the flesh and reject authority. Reject authority and revile angelic majesties. But Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil, the devil's an angelic majesty, by the way, when Michael disputed with the devil about and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Even Michael didn't rebuke Satan. Michael said, the Lord rebuke you. Michael's the archangel, the highest, right? Ark, that's number one. But these men revile things which they do not understand and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals. By these things they are destroyed. Woe to them. So you have these bad guys who are in the church and they're reviling Satan and his demons, all that stuff. That's an evidence something's wrong.
now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.